On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast, Scott Radley in for the vacationing Rick Zampern today. We're going to be talking about our housing protocol, especially the tiny homes that's getting some blowback from residents, should it. We'll talk to Michelle Baird, the Director of Housing, on that one. Uh, we'll be talking disco. We're going to be talking about Timu. If you don't know what Timu is, stick around, you'll find out what Timu is. Uh, we're going to get into whether there should be a public inquiry about the pandemic. Remember the pandemic? Uh Uh-huh. We'll talk about that one. And we're going to be getting into whether the limit by Meta on Canadian News should have been lifted during the wildfire situation. Oh, and before you think that's all, Emma Rush is coming up as well. If you don't know who Emma Rush is, all the more reason to stick around and find out. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. As you well know, there has been no topic that has been discussed in this city in the last number of weeks and months more than encampments and housing. Uh, and as a result, uh, there's probably been no person who has been, who has had more face time, more air time, has become more famous than my next guest. Uh, she is the director of housing in the city of Hamilton, Michelle Baird. Michelle, how are you this morning? I'm great. Who Thanks, knew? Scott. Who knew when you took this job, everybody in the city was going to know who you were? I certainly didn't. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, this latest um, move, which uh, is uh, last week, allowed for 25 tiny homes to be built, among the other protocols that uh, that council passed. This is an interesting one because. I really believe that many, many people in the city like the idea or believe in the idea of the tiny homes as a test project or to see what happens with this. Yet the the blowback from this has been, we like them, but we don't really like them in the place where they have been designated to go. Um, what do you take from that? Is that is that just, it's going to happen no matter where you put them or should there perhaps have been more consultation with the people to find some place that people would have liked better? So, Scott, the issue with the HATS program, the tiny shelter program, this is work that we've been working on with HATS for 18 months, almost two years at this point in time. And the challenge all along has been really that, that people conceptually like the idea, understand there's a need and a significant problem in the city. Um, But at the same time, there's been no ability to land a site or to get consensus on what site or where, where it should be located. Uh, so for this particular round, we we had been sent away by council directed to look at sanctioned encampment sites. When we did that work, we looked at a number of sites and considered HATS as a manager or basically an agency to oversee one of these sites. And so that's how we came to the strong solution. Quite frankly, the, the longer term solution that HATS would be more in favor of is the Hamilton Scout House. However, the property has some safety concerns right now, so they do need to be rectified over the next couple of years while HATS is in their pilot site on Strawn. You mentioned Scout House and, and issues. Is there anywhere that you found when you were looking around and HATS was looking around for a place, is there anywhere that didn't have problems or didn't have m- as many problems perhaps or as much criticism or concern from neighbors? Was there was there some place this could have gone that maybe you didn't think or Hats didn't think was ideal but would have been, would have inspired less of a response? I don't think there is a perfect location. That's part of the challenge that we're up against. And there are some criteria that Hats needs, of course, to to make it successful on their end. We need it successful for the city. 
we looked at quite a number of sites, quite frankly. We're looking for a site with proximity to downtown, uh, connection with transit, that kind of thing. So there are lots of sites, of course, that don't meet the criteria. There isn't a perfect site. Uh, we've been working very closely with HATS and we're confident that they will both engage in the community, not only up front, but as they operate. And that I, we're confident that this is going to be successful on the Strawn site. How important, I've, we've had Tom Cooper on the station here, uh, who's with the um, po Hamilton Poverty Coalition. We've had others who have talked about this. And the question has always been, how important is it, since this is a pilot project, that this works? Because I have to believe that if this works, you can make the case reasonably well that we can expand or find somewhere else to do this. But if it doesn't work, if there are problems, it's going to be really hard to convince people to make a go of it somewhere else. Fair? Fair, completely fair. So we are looking to see this succeed, of course, and we're not the only municipality right now that uh, trying out this strategy. The, the challenge we have, of course, is we just don't have enough shelter space for everyone that needs them, not even near enough. And this is a low barrier alternative, perhaps, to building shelters. As you can imagine, it takes quite some time to build shelters. So this is a quick setup. We do, of course, want to see it to be a success. It is a pilot though, and so we will evaluate that success along the way. We also know some uh, other municipalities are in the very same place and looking to evaluate their strategies. So is it a promising solution? Perhaps. It's absolutely not a, a solution to homelessness overall. Mm. This is not a permanent house, but rather it's a short-term solution for people, hopefully. Um, it's definitely important that it succeed if we want to look at this a strategy even in some you know, minor tweaked way, locating elsewhere in the city, we need to be able to demonstrate success on their first outing, if you will. Michelle, there, there is, we were told by the counselor for that ward, uh, for Cameron Crutch from Ward 2, that there will be uh, community outreach, there'll be meetings or some kind of meeting to for residents of that area to, to hear what's going on. But is this now locked in? Will, will those meetings change anything or will they mostly be more informative for those residents to understand what's going to happen? So I know that HATS, the organizing group, has committed to meeting with the uh, neighborhood and the councillor has as well. At this point, they, they would hopefully be informative, but of course they could perhaps uh, inform how the, how the organization of HATS sets up on that property. And we do need to work to ensure that that property is going to make sense. So there's definitely a need for feedback from the community and need for inputs from HATS to the community with respect to what to expect. This is not gonna be a one-time meeting. HATS has committed to, to us through their operation that this is gonna be an ongoing engagement with the community. And we would expect that that ongoing engagement would, would continue through their operation because there's always opportunity for improvements along the way. The community needs to be heard and HATS needs to understand their concerns while the community also needs to understand what it is HATS is doing and what their operation looks like. So I think there's lots of opportunities along the way to hear each other and meet each other's needs. That is Michelle Baird. She is the Director of Housing for the City of Hamilton. Michelle, thanks for doing this this morning. Thanks so much, Scott. Have a great day. You as well. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There are uh, a number of articles and a number of experts uh, who are now saying and have been saying that Canada needs to have an inquiry, an official inquiry, an independent inquiry into the government's handling of what happened during the pandemic. Now, so far, this has been met with 
no official acceptance of this or no promises or anything, but now, so we've gone from having medical experts and others. Now opposition critics are jumping on board saying we need to know what we did right and what we did wrong in time for whenever the next thing is that comes along. Are they right? Or is this just political posturing and is this just unnecessary use of money and time? Let's bring in Thomas Tenkate. He's a professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health with Toronto Metropolitan University. He joins us now. Thank you for doing this. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks, Scott. What do you think about this? This is, um, you know, inquiries can be very useful. They can also just devolve into a bit of a waste of time if, if everything, if we don't get documents and we don't get the information we need. I, is this the kind of thing that we should be looking at or did we learn enough already and do we feel confident that we know what we could do if another pandemic hit? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think, like, personally, I think that there is the need for some level of inquiry. Uh, after after the SARS, there was an inquiry, uh, you know, quite a substantial inquiry that led to the formation of uh, what we know as Public Health Ontario uh, currently. And so, you know, and, and like when you look at, uh, you know, the, what happened through COVID and, you know, overall, you know, Canada did very well in terms of uh, numbers of people vaccinated and we and the rates of infection and numbers of deaths were quite low in comparison to uh, other what we'd say comparable countries in the say the G10 you know in a lot of ways that came on the back of the community really stepping up and and uh, you know getting vaccinated and uh, you know generally abiding by the the quite quite severe restrictions and so so from my perspective I think you know to to honor the community and the members of the public who really stepped up, I think it's important to, uh, you know, say, take, take some time and say, what, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? And can, can we try and uh, prepare better for next time? Does my memory serve that after we had the inquiry about SARS during COVID though, there were criticisms that some of the things that we learned from that inquiry were ignored, that we had done the work and then didn't follow through. Am I, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So, so that, you know, like in, in some ways, a lot of the things that, that the, the SARS, uh, uh, inquiry came up with, I think you could probably just, you know, cross out SARS and put COVID and you'd have probably the same same well, outcomes uh, even if you did an inquiry because we, we tend not to learn what we need to. Uh, and, and a lot of that's because of the the uh, the funding required to put in place the, the appropriate systems and 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 you know and, and the, the you know and what in a lot of ways what like I think there was systems put in place uh, uh, early on after SARS, but you know, twenty years later uh, now COVID turns, COVID turns up and, you know, the, the, it's sort of like, well, you know, oh, that's, old, you know, SARS is old news, but, but the reality is we, we're actually needing that sort of longer term investment into these underlying systems and particularly systems around, uh, collecting data mm. and, and, you know, because that's what, you know, to be able to make the informed decisions that we need to, uh, in, in response to, to, uh, you know, outbreaks and, and pandemics more broadly, you, you need uh, appropriate data. And, and we, we still really don't have those data collection systems uh, effectively in place. Yeah. I just, as I say, I forgive my cynicism or skepticism, but if we've been down this road once 
and had an inquiry and came up with the things that we should have at our disposal and be ready to do. And then we whiffed in some cases on some of those things. How are we better going to prepare ourselves the next time if we've already shown we're not going to follow it the first time? Uh, uh, no, I, I agree. I, I think it is, uh, it, it's a, I, I, yeah, I agree that, you know, we, we don't, you know, as a, you know, as a society, you know, more broadly, we don't tend to learn lessons from the past and, and, uh, it, you know, and if we don't, we're, we're doomed to, to repeat them into the future. And so, uh, how, how best to do that and, and what, what the impetus is to, to actually, uh, you know, really say, well, what do, you know, what didn't we do very well, but also what did we do well? Uh, you know, we need to be able to have that to, to be able to move forward. Whereas, you know, you know, what I'm you know seeing already is that a lot of the public health units, uh, you know, uh, budgets are sort of getting cut. They're, they're starting to, you know, go back to just core business and, you know, and, and you go, well, you know, that was what was happening pre pandemic. You know, they were starting to wanting to amalgamate, starting to want to cut staff and, and that sort of thing. So, so in some ways it's, in some ways it's like, oh, well, COVID was a blip on the system and let's get back to business as usual of, of, you know, sort of, you know, cutting things. So what we'd need, what we really need is to say, well, how can we actually strengthen the systems versus start to weaken them? It's, uh, it's an interesting one because, you know, um, probably we got to run here, but probably many of the people who will be in positions of authority the next time something happens, if it's 20 years or 25 years away again, will be different people who went through the whole COVID thing. And so, you know, you, mm. uh, you do it, you learn, you start over, you do it, you learn, you start over. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. who knows if we'll learn this time. Uh, Thomas Tenkate, well, professor with the School of Occupational and Public Health with Toronto Metropolitan University. Thanks so much for doing this. Uh, appreciate it. Thanks very much, Scott. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting one because did we learn anything from SARS? Did we? Did, did it show that we did? You decide. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There is right now uh, a lot of anger, it seems, from the federal government towards Meta because you know what's been going on with the news services being blocked because of a disagreement with the government about who should pay for links or whatever else. Well, the federal government is angry because they say Meta should have lifted this ban for articles on the wildfire situation so that people could read about it and know what was going on. And others, I think, will say, well, wait a second, you have a disagreement it's not up to them to be lifting or not lifting under certain circumstances. Besides, you have social media. Who is right in this case? Let me bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist favorite on this show and on this station. Carmi, thanks for doing this today. Oh, so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, okay, let's go right to that. Who is correct here? Because you've got both sides dug in. Both sides have their reasons for being where they are. Should Meta be expected under emergency situations to change what they're doing and give people information that they believe they shouldn't have normally? Well, according to the way they run their business, no, they're saying that they can't afford it and that this law will cost them huge amounts of money and they don't want to be part of it. Uh, so from a business perspective, yeah, it's probably the right thing for them to do. From a moral uh, and ethical perspective, it is the absolute wrong thing to do. Here you have a big American tech company that has a service that Canadians have come to rely on for better or for worse 
for sharing news resources. Uh, and at a time of, of both regional and national emergency, uh, it is no longer available for that purpose. They have they've gone dark and they could easily flip it back on and say, hey, we'll be the nice guys here because we realize that you know, wildfires are bearing down on some major cities in Canada uh, and people's lives are at stake and we don't want to make life harder for them. That would be the nice thing to do. You would think Mark Zuckerberg would, would relent. He clearly has not. He had an opportunity to do so and that has not happened here. So yeah, you know, business, yes, but moral and ethics, no. Uh, and from that perspective as a Canadian, that, that frankly angers me. Okay, would it have made a difference though? And the reason I ask that question is because presumably uh, Facebook and Meta had all information about the Hawaiian wildfires available online and a thousand people are missing. And that, so that that platform didn't seem to save the world from that catastrophe. So would it really have made a difference anyway? Yeah, and, and I, it's a really good question. I think it's important that we sort of recognize that Facebook, and to a lesser extent Instagram, we don't go to Instagram for real-time news. We go to Instagram to share photos and pretty videos. That's pretty much it. Whereas Facebook, yeah, we, we sort of do share it, but it isn't in real-time. In many cases, uh, if you remember back before they turned everything off, you know, you would often see a news story in your feed in the morning, for example, Then it, it's like, wait a second, I've seen that before. It was four or five days old. So you're right, Facebook is never been a really good real-time tool for learning what's going on now 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 uh you know that if there's a fire bearing down on your neighborhood you're not going to facebook you're using the text-based system that emergency responders use you might have used twitter in the past although that's getting a little less efficient um so no like for that purpose for life-saving uh, uh activities no facebook has always been a lousy tool for it and we're not really losing a whole lot however it would have been convenient during what's happening in Kelowna, during what's happening in Northwest Territories, to be able to share a link to a news story, uh, to be able to share a link to an emergency responder Facebook page, to allow emergency responders to share community-based news a little more easily. Maybe not in real time, but it would certainly take uh, you know another step, another piece of complexity out of the equation for victims who are already under tremendous stress. See, this is the other thing I don't understand about this though, Carmi, is when you say it would take a bit of complexity out, to me, it would be more complex to go to Facebook and try to wade through the memes and the ads and everything else than it would if I lived, let's say that there was a, a wildfire here in Hamilton to go to the CHML website or CHCH or the spectator. That would seem to me to be the logical place that you would go to go to the local, I can go directly to the local news outlets and get it. It, it seems if people can't figure that out, not to be, you know, too dismissive, but I, I think we got bigger problems. If you're, if there's a huge <laughs> catastrophe and you can't figure out, there's all these local places, go look it up. We, I don't get, I don't, I don't know what to say to that. I think you're right on the money, Scott. And I think it, it speaks to the longer term problem that we have, that we've allowed ourselves as consumers to be lulled into believing that we should be using social media to aggregate all of our news content. Uh, when in reality, it is a really lousy way to learn what's going on in our communities, whether in real time or not, because we allow the algorithm to decide what we see. I mean, my feed is just filled with stuff I have no interest in because the AI has decided that you know, suggested for you. Uh, no, I have no interest in it. I just want to see what I followed. And so I think this is the time where, so you're absolutely right. And I think this is the moment where we have to, we have to step up. 
we, you know, we have to start start disintermediating social media. Pull the middleman out. Stop using social media as a tool because the the algorithm is not our friend. And start bookmarking our favorite news sources. Bookmark our radio stations, our TV stations, our magazines, our newspapers, our community news resources. Uh, follow them on other platforms go directly to their websites and set up those links in your browsers set up the shortcuts on the home page of your of your device download the apps that they make available to us and go directly to them uh, it is going to take some retraining um, and i really wish we didn't have to do this in the middle of an emergency but at the same time we have to take accountability for our media consumption we haven't been doing that for a while we've handed that over to mark zuckerberg that needs to end and that needs to end now and you're right i share your frustration that we haven't been a little bit more proactive in driving that change. We need to be more proactive. I've got 20 seconds here. So one more thing, the federal government for all of its screaming about why Facebook is doing this, why has the federal government not put the same energy into directing people to say, go to your local media outlets to get the news? I think it's a fantastic question. They, you know, we all know that the owners of, 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 of radio stations across the country have been sharing news, say, go to our website, download our, our app, why the government hasn't shifted its messaging in that direction, recognizing that Canadians need to own their media consumption habits and the government needs to help, I don't know. Probably a good question for our local MP and for our Prime Minister. Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. Always appreciate it. Thanks for doing this, Carmi. Thanks so much, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I'm not sure that a million dollars is getting you a house with all the furniture these days and all the other stuff in this song. Bare Naked Ladies may have to get back together again and redo this and change it to If I Had a Billion Dollars. That might cover all the things that it says that it needs to cover these days. Scott Radley in for Rick Zamprin here on Good Morning Hamilton. Uh, speaking of billion dollars or billionaires, there is an app out now that you may have heard about. It's advising people or asking people or telling people that if you use this, you can shop like a billionaire. It's called Timu. Hmm. Uh, let me bring in Bruce Winder. He's a retail analyst. He's author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19. Bruce, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm well. Do you shop like a billionaire? Uh, no, I try to shop like uh, <laughs> like I have no money. That way I stay out of trouble. <laughs> that's, a, that's a smart move. But this thing, so so the idea with this app, as I understand it, and it's called Timu, which when I hear Timu, I think of Solani immediately, the hockey player, but now I've got to you yeah, know, refocus. Yeah. That's a few years ago. The idea here is that it is super cheap, unbelievably cheap stuff that apparently seems way like it would be or should be worth way more than what you're going to pay for it. Explain the, the idea behind this. Yeah, so Timu was launched in North America last fall, and they did a big uh, Super Bowl ad. And supposedly about 10 million Americans are using the app right now, but it's really kind of risen super quick. And the whole premise behind it is it's like a marketplace where consumers buy literally direct from Chinese factories. And, uh, you, you know, because you're cutting out the middle middle person, so to speak, you're getting rock bottom prices uh, for these things that are almost unbelievably good. Yeah, like the, the so the story here, let me just find some of the things. So, uh, you know, a smartwatch for $28 or uh, um, sunglasses for less than $4, things like that. Exactly. Now, are these things, you know, I, I've, I've traveled over in that part of the world 
And, you know, you can go and on a street corner buy sunglasses for under $4, but they're knockoffs right. and, you know, the, you wear them twice, then the, the arm falls off. Is that what we're talking about? Or are the, do we know, are these things really the same things that would end up in the store here for much, much more? Well, that's the, the, the billion dollar question, so to speak, um, you know, is it's probably all of the above on there. Um, you know, I'm sure that the, mer- I've, I've heard different things, you know, some people say the merchandise is good and it works fine. Some people say, well, I, you know, I, I bought something, I tried it, it didn't work that well. I've also had, you know, someone I know say, Hey, I, I tried Timu and I think my co- my credit card was compromised. So it's, it's a little rough around the edges right now, a little raw in terms of what you're getting. But I guess the idea is at that price point, even if it works a few times, it's worth it. Is it really, I mean, there are a number of things like this. I remember a number of years ago, four or five, maybe more now, I lose track, years ago, there was one where you can, uh, it was like a, a, an auction, but it was like, you could sometimes win things again for extraordinarily low prices. TVs, there was ads for them all over the time on TV. Right, uh, I remember the, that. Yeah. These things, I can't remember the name of it. Someone out there will remember and let us know. Uh, these things pop up occasionally because someone gets this idea and they seem to do great for a while and then just disappear. Is that kind of what we're expecting for this? Or do, do you suspect this has some longevity because so many people signed up? Yeah, it's a good question. And I'm not sure yet what the answer would be. You know, it could go either way. Um, because remember, we're in a really tough time here from a recession, right? We're not, we're not officially in a recession, but people are acting like a recession with interest rates and, you know, stickiness on food inflation. So people are kind of desperate to try different things. I think that, I think it's going to come down to how, how, how much quality is in the merchandise that people receive. And if people feel good about their privacy, if Mm. they can pull off a decent quality product, doesn't have to be great, but it, you know, meets the intended purpose and they somehow manage quality, then this thing could last a lot longer than these so-called gimmicks. But if those two things fail, I think it could be over quickly. The thing though, so there's two things. There are people who are raising questions about this and saying, A, that there are ethical questions because you're going straight to uh, a country directly where we're having issues right now, potentially, well, not potentially, politically, And you've got people who may be working for below, you know, human rights levels of employment. So there's that. But the other part about it is, as you say, even if somehow, even if you can block that out, oh, you know, if I can get a smartphone, who cares what, you know, even if you can block that out, you're right. The privacy stuff. Are we confident with these things always that we're not by signing up, putting something onto our phone that we don't want? And that, that's one of the issues. That's one of the concerns, right? And that's why Timu has sort of fallen into the same category as Sheen, which you may have, uh, you may be aware of as well, a clothing giant, very similar business model. And there's a lot of scrutiny right now by the U.S. government about, you know, uh, these apps and whether they're tied to China um, and really, you know, privacy concerns. Uh, so it's causing a lot of uh, discussion right now, if anything. Do you think though, that most people would be, that that would be their number one concern or that the affordability of these things and a great deal would be the number one concern? Where where do you think people's heads are as far as what would be the more important of those two things? Well, it's going to vary by segment, but I mean, if you're looking at the sweet spot of probably where they're targeting, which is young people, 
you know, call it, you know, 15 to, to 35 or 20, 25, they, they might be a little more concerned with getting value and making it through the month. You know, things are really tough out there for young people right now in terms of rent and food and wage sort of being flat. So these people might say, hey, you know what, I'm willing to take the chance in order to get the, the value here because society has sort of left me out in the cold on the other side. So So I need to do what I need to do. And you know what? Hey, if it breaks a few rules, then so be it. See, I kind of feel the same way. I, I think that people are so desperate almost right now to be able to save some money that the trade-off of, well, you know, as long as I've got some sort of virus protection or something out there, then I'm, I'm good to go. I, I suspect that's probably the case. I think this will probably do very well. Who knows if it'll stick around, but I think it'll probably be doing very well, even better than it is now. Yeah, I agree. I think it's... It's going to grow in its perfect timing with the uh, with the economic climate and uh, around the world right now. Last thing, does this not, when one of these things works, do we not generally then see just a surge of imitators come along behind it? Yeah, it's a great question. And actually, that's something that we've talked about before a few weeks ago is, um, you know, they call it the sheenification of of business, which is sort of taking that sheen business model, the Timu business model, and having it going across a number of verticals now, a number of industries. And uh, you could see that particularly in the uh, consumer packaged goods area. You know, it, it is tempting. There's there's absolutely no question that these things are tempting. It's, it's, it's a question of, you know, how confident you are in what you're getting, I suppose. But for some of these prices, I'm not going to lie. It's You look at some of the things they're offering and... I like to think of myself as a little bit skeptical. Uh, uh, it's pretty tempting, Bruce. It's pretty tempting, some of these things. It is definitely. And a lot of consumers feel they've been ripped off by companies over the last three years because of greedflation. Yes. And just the absolute, you know, increase in prices in every vertical across the board. So they're probably like, hey, you know what? This is my time to pay back and I'm going to skip you guys and go right to your factory. And you know what, even, and we got to run, but even if it turns out that the thing I buy is a piece of junk for 20 bucks, Hey, I'll take my chances. And if it works out, I'm way ahead of the game. It's, it's a, it's an interesting one. Uh, Bruce Winder, retail analyst, I'll go buy his book, uh, retail before, during and after COVID-19. Maybe whether you buy it on Timu or not, that's up to you, but go find (laughs) it and buy it somewhere. Bruce, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks a lot. Take care. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. That is Rush. Well, Emma Rush. Classical guitarist from Hamilton. He's got a new album out. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Emma joins me now. Emma, how are you this morning? Hi, I'm doing great. Thanks. Excellent. Yeah, when I heard we were having Rush on, I was like, wait a second. I, but no, this is even better. This is, uh, that, <laughs> th- that, is uh, that is amazing, the uh, listening to that. And you've got a new album coming out. This is, um, how, how do you, how does somebody in this age uh, get into classical guitar? Because I have to think that most people who are coming up who are your age would have naturally gone towards rock or pop or something else. How did classical guitar become the thing? Well, I think classical guitar is almost like a um, like a gateway drug, you know, it's a gateway <laughs> instrument into classical music. Um, everybody's like familiar with a guitar more than like you know a bassoon or something. So uh, if you're into guitar, people tend to be sort of into all kinds of guitar. Yeah, I think uh, you might be the first person who has dropped the bassoon reference on this show in a while. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Proving my point. There you go. But this is, uh, so were you, 
as a, as a young person, as a kid, were you brought up in music and in classical music or was this something you just gravitated towards? Oh, well, I was so lucky when I was a kid, there was um, a lot of music programs at my school. So I, I was able to access piano lessons, um, string lessons uh, when I was pretty young. And then my family also was pretty musical. My mom's a great piano player and my dad's a great appreciator of classical music. And uh, yeah, when I found the guitar a little bit late, I was 19 when I started, but everything kind of fell in place for me since I'd already had some musical, you know, background on other instruments. So what had you played before guitar? Yeah, piano, cello, and the oboe. Okay, so you've been been all over it. So, okay, so as you get into this, though, is it a natural thing, is it an easy and natural thing to find your way into classical guitar? Because I think for, for a lot of people, and maybe I'm simplifying this too much, a lot of people in Canada might hear classical guitar and think Leona Boyd, but that's a while back. This is, there's not a million classical guitarists out there. You're, you've, you've found a niche here that is unique. Uh, yeah, well, I think, um, I think it's such a, I find for everybody, like once they sort of get into classical guitar, they're hooked. Mm. <laughs> and I find this goes for, um, you know, the people that are professional players and people that are fans as well. The classical guitar has just got something about the sound and the sort of colors it can get that um, once people, once people hear it, they, they can't get away. No, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And the other thing that I'll say, and I don't know if I'm, you know, if this is accurate or not, but it seems to me classical guitar, uh, anybody who plays a classical instrument or play, it has to be technically great. Classical guitar, though, there just is, to do it right and to do it well like you do, there isn't a lot of room to not be perfect. It, it is such a, seems to me to be such a technically demanding thing to be able to play that way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. So there's a, you know, I put in a lot of practice hours and, uh, um, but it all turns out to be worth it in the end. I mean, what is, what, for Emma Rush, what is a day? Like if you're sitting down, if you're not performing that day, so someone understands how much work is involved, how, how, how much are you practicing in a day or in a week? How much time do you spend with your guitar? Well, I used to try and manage about four hours a day with the guitar. Um, but these days I'm uh, happily very busy. So I'm on the road quite a lot. So it's not always possible to sort of maintain that kind of schedule so uh you know sometimes i'm trying to grab 20 minutes at the airports or you know half an hour here and there and try to work it into work it into my schedule but uh basically i try and spend as much time as i can find with the guitar mm. so there are times when you'll be sitting people will be walking by you in the airport and you'll be playing and they may just I and mean, people must stop as soon as you start doing that uh, sometimes they do. I usually try and find a corner that's sort of away from everybody else, but maybe next time I should open up my case. No kidding. No kidding. I, I, you know what? I, yeah. uh, I don't know that, uh, that that's exactly going to be the level that you're wanting. <laughs> you're, you're at a level way beyond opening the case, but, uh, nonetheless, I, I'm thinking that would be very cool though. Just be walking through the airport and come across someone playing like you do. I'd, I'd probably miss my flight. Uh, tell us about the new album. Tell that you have a new album out. Tell us about it. Yeah, oh, this project was really special for me. So um, I have a distant uh, family connection to the Hamilton Impressionist painter William Blair Bruce. And uh, he grew up in Hamilton and then uh, moved with his career to France and then Sweden. And the new record is a collection of seven pieces that I commissioned from seven different Canadian composers. And each piece is inspired by a different William Blair Bruce painting. 
So it's all, you know, pretty personal because I grew up seeing a lot of these paintings in the art gallery of Hamilton or in like the homes of some of my family members. And uh, yeah, the idea was just to sort of explore what could happen if you wanted to share that artwork through sound. It is, uh, it's a remarkable thing you do. As I say, I I know that uh, just listening to it, I I realize how much work and how much skill and technique and everything goes into it. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an amazing thing. I really appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk about it today. Thanks for this, Emma. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the call. People should uh, absolutely, by the way, go and look up Emma Rush uh, online or get an album or uh, or find her. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're going to give you an opportunity, or at least you're going to get an opportunity to boogie, I'm told. I want to bring in Tara K. Palermo with the Hammer City Roller Derby with an opportunity, with an explanation of where you'll get your chance to get up and boogie. Tara K., how are you this morning? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I am great. I don't know if it's too early to get up and boogie at this point, but I understand there will be an opportunity a little later in a day if people are interested in getting out and boogieing. It's never too early to boogie, but yeah, yeah, we're really excited. Tell me about it. uh, Yeah, the Hammer City Roller Derby team um, is hosting a disco skate party which, in all fairness, is a different kind of skate party than we're used to doing. Yes. But we're really excited. So it's in partnership with Terracott Communities. And uh, they've asked us to be a part of the group. So we're going to strap on our skates and be down there with everybody on Friday, August 25th from 5 to 10 p.m. So the event is there's going to be a DJ. There's going to be, like, some cool lights and some cool, you know, pop-ups happening. And uh, the event is in support of Welcome Home, which is a a local to Hamilton North End uh, Food Bank organization. So when you say this is different from usual, I mean, roller derby, I think most (laughs) people know. So there will be no hip checks. There will be no, if if someone comes out and they're like, you know, not great on their skates, this is not going to be like the gazelle attacked by the cheetah. They're not going to be wiped out. Don't worry, this is a no contact, <laughs> a no contact dance party. But yeah, our team will be there and we're always down to help people who are new to skating and if they have questions about what roller skating is like, this is your this is your group of people to to kind of have on hand. So we're really excited to be there. The, the funny thing about this, everything old is new again. Every, I mean, people say that oh, yeah. all the time. Uh, there are a lot of people in this city that grew up roller skating to disco hits in roller rinks around town. <laughs> and probably this is, uh, now they may say, well, I don't know. I used to be able to take a fall better than I do now. I think they'll be okay. But th- this is something that, you know, th- this was a thing once upon a time that was every Friday or Saturday night for some people. For sure. For sure. I know we're, we're excited to be a part of it and it's, you know, it's a little different. Yeah. Than what we're kind of uh, used to doing, but we're excited. It should be fun. Who um, is? I who, think it'll be a really great event. Who do you think is going to come out? I mean, when you think about this, are you expecting this is going to be a very young crowd? That this is something really new for essentially, or are you thinking this is going to be more of a remember what we used to do back in the day kind of thing for people in their thir- late thirties or forties? You know what? We hope it's a bit of both. Like it's a really cool opportunity if you you know, if you're new to skating and if it's something you're more familiar with or something you used to do or something you want to get back into, like, this is the perfect opportunity. And, you know, I think, too, like, our team goes down to Pier 8 to skate all the time. And the amount of people that are there just already skating and learning or maybe relearning, I I think there's a lot more people interested in skating and, and you know, hopefully roller derby kind of 
you know, through that. But uh, I think there might be a bit of everybody at the event. Do you have to be able to do, I don't even know what you call it, but I, all I can picture is, do you have to be able to do the, like the crisscross <laughs> thing with your feet? I, oh, I, is there a name for that thing? I always think of the, like the roller rink, the, 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 the I don't know, the crisscross foot move. We, we, we call them, I'm also a former figure skater, so we call them cross cuts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, it, you could have people who are coming out who have never done this. Are there, are there skates available or do they have to bring their own? Uh, typically if you bring your own, but I mean, there's information. If you go actually to our Instagram page, which is just Hammer City RD, you'll see the, uh, info, uh, post and there's information there. There's a link to the tickets. There's, there's everything you'll need to know there for the event. So yeah, it's, it's going to be good if you, if you're comfortable skating and if you're not, that's totally okay too. There's going to be lots to do. You mentioned, well, obviously you guys are the Hammer City Roller Derby team, so the, there is yeah. a, is this a, a recruitment thing as well? I know you're not doing it for that reason, but it, I mean, is this where you find people to join when they've gone roller skating and then all of a sudden they go, oh, you can do something with this? You know what? There, I think there definitely are people in our league who have kind of been uh, recruited by other people, but it's a really great opportunity to meet the team. We're going to be there. Um, it's going to be just a cool opportunity. If you are curious to learn more, we're definitely happy to answer questions. Um, we host uh, what we call skating foundations for people who are interested in trying out the sport where you can come and learn the basics and see if it's for you. So uh, yeah, there's, we'll, we'll be there if anyone has any questions. <laughs> I, I should have asked you right off the top. Do you have a roller derby name? I do. Is I do. It, is it, is everybody it, does. Is it safe for radio? <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> yes. So I, my first name is Tara K, and everybody's always called me TK, so my derby name is TKO. Well, see, that fits perfectly. That fits perfectly. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it, it seems like a natural extension. Yeah, so. see, back in the day, uh, I don't even know how many, how many years now has Hammer City been back going? Because I, I know way when it got started, I think it, yeah. like when it got restarted, it was at Mainway Arena in Burlington, as I recall. And I remember writing about it for the paper, and there were a bunch of roller derby names at the time that there is no oh, way yeah. we could have said them <laughs> on radio. So it's been it's been familyized a little bit, maybe uh, just a little bit. You know what piece of trivia for you? Hammer City Roller Derby is actually we were founded in 2006, and we're the first uh, not for profit and skater operated flat track roller derby league in Canada. It is, uh, I knew, I, you know, yeah. I couldn't remember it's 2006, boy, all of a sudden I feel like yeah. it's been a long time. Um, but it has been, you guys, you guys have made it go. And that's the amazing thing that you keep yeah. going. It's coming up on 20 years. Wow. I know. It's amazing. Wild, uh, once again, really excited. Tara Kay, I got to run, but once again, very quickly for people who are interested in this, the date and the time and the place, if they want to do this disco skate party with you guys. Yeah, absolutely. So it's at Pier 8 Outdoor Roller Rink at 47 Discovery Drive. It's on August 25th from 5 to 10 p.m. And it's in support of Welcome Home, a local food bank. And if you head to our Instagram page, you'll see the graphic and you can find out more information on how to register. It's also free, I should mention, to attend. Perfect. Uh, Tara K. Palermo, TKO. I uh, appreciate you taking time today. <laughs> Thanks for doing this. Amazing. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.